Hello everyone, thank you so much for being so loyal with the Foreign Policy Talks. Apologies for being delaying uh, the next episode for about two weeks. I have a couple things to do, but I promise that this is going to be a very interesting discussion with the one and only Ambassador Robert Blake Jr. Uh, we're going to talk more on Trump's foreign policy. Uh, we know that there has been so many issues around uh, President Trump. Uh, he's been attacked by the huge storm of COVID pandemic and not only affecting its domestic politics, but also the, the direction of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, we all expect the U.S. leadership, but uh, the fact shows the opposite. And uh, I, I'm going to ask Ambassador Blake on what will happen to the 2020 presidential election and if Trump is not re-elected as the U.S. president and Joe Biden is elected, what do we expect in terms of changes in the U.S. foreign policy? Interesting, right? So without further ado, let's talk to him. Ambassador Blake, thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy. Um, thank you for joining the Foreign Policy Talks. Uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, Ambassador, so we know that ideally, uh, and we have an expectation that the U.S. government uh, uses the artwork to reaffirm uh, its commitment to democracy, human rights, and good governance. Uh, we also know that theoretically, uh, U.S. standing has always been bolstered by an apologetic uh, support for universal values, right? Like freedom of speech, individual rights, and so on. What's your assessment on the U.S. standing on those values at the time of this pandemic, Ambassador? Well, first of all, Noto, let me say uh, how much I appreciate the invitation to join you today. To answer your question, one of the great American leaders that I had the pleasure of working with was former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis. And after he left the Trump administration, he said that the United States has two great powers in the world. First is what he called the power of intimidation. That is through our military, the most powerful military in the world. But he said that our more important power is our power of inspiration to the rest of the world that really goes back to our nation's democratic founding. And unfortunately, we have now lost some of that power to inspire in recent years. As your listeners know, President Trump has pursued a unilateral and transactional foreign policy where the promotion of American values is no longer a guiding principle, but rather is a tool to be used as needed. So this has created space for authoritarian leaders to restrict some democratic freedoms with the knowledge that the United States is not likely to object, as has been the practice of Republican and Democratic administrations for decades. Joe Biden, the Democratic candidate for president, who currently leads President Trump in the polls by substantial margins, mm -hmm. has pledged to restore a more values-based foreign policy. And I should also say that this is not just a foreign policy issue for America. President Trump shows these same authoritarian tendencies at home. He has weakened the system of checks and balances on his power. For example, he has fired inspectors general who are investigating 
Trump cabinet members like Secretary of State Pompeo, but others as well. And this matters because these inspectors general are the most important institution to ensure accountability of the executive branch. The president and his administration have also ignored congressional requests for testimony and information, thereby diminishing Congress's traditional oversight and accountability role. And the president has fired officials who are investigating him or his family or his friends. Most recently, the, uh, the attorney for the Southern District of New York, Mr. Berman, who was investigating um, various aspects of the Trump family fortune in New York. So um, that's the answer to my first question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so you have touched my next question, actually, Ambassador. We know that yeah. uh, news and analysis have reported that many government containment policies and measures in fighting COVID pandemic are authoritarian. Um, we know that it will have side effects on the functioning of our democracies, right? So what's your view on this trend? Yeah. Well, I agree that some governments have used the COVID crisis to curtail democratic freedoms, but we really need to discourage that trend. Already, we have seen declines in democratic freedoms in countries like Cambodia, where Prime Minister Hun Sen's government has taken advantage of COVID-19 and so-called fake news laws to jail some of his political opponents. Likewise, Philippine President Duterte gave himself what he called, quote, special temporary powers, unquote, and has used those to jail some of his opposition. So again, this really matters for the state of democracy in these countries and for the region, but it also matters for the long term. China and the United States are vying for influence now in Southeast Asia, and China, far from democratizing, as it has prospered, as many people bet that it would, has doubled down on its own authoritarian model and is seeking to promote its style of governance. So it's very, very important for, uh, for the region, for countries like Indonesia to stand up for democratic rights and make themselves an example. And of course, it's important for the United States to do the same. The trends towards greater authoritarianism is worrying in the United States as well, as we discussed earlier. Okay, uh, we know we have always uh, seen that Trump is always uh, confronting uh, media uh, in the U.S. Uh, we know that media has played a significant role in terms of sharing whether it's fake news or whether it's a it's two facts, right? And in this case, for example, in Indonesia, media can be provocatively dangerous uh, for the public and trigger more unnecessary action among society. What's your take on the role of freedom of media uh, at this uh, pandemic? That's a great question. Freedom of the media is an essential part of a healthy democracy everywhere. And social media is an important new medium through which many people get their news. Moreover, we have seen in countries like India and Indonesia that the increase in the use of tools like WhatsApp has created terrific new means of communication, but unfortunately, these means can also be exploited in ways that are harmful. We have seen many instances of false rumors being propagated and widely shares, shared in ways 
that have led to religious and other violence. So what can be done? I think there are several ways that this can be countered. First of all, companies like Facebook and Google and others are doing a better job of monitoring and taking down such fake news before it can cause the harm that I talked about. But second, I think there's a very important role for local leaders. One model that I always admired when I was in Indonesia was what local religious leaders have done in Ambon. Um, as your listeners know, Ambon, of course, was the site of significant sectarian violence between 1999 and 2002. And I had the pleasure of visiting Ambon while I was ambassador, and I took the time to meet with some of the local religious leaders there to ask them how they had managed to avoid religious violence since then. And they said that they had been able to do that by establishing and maintaining an effective early warning system. So when they hear of false rumors starting, either on the television or on social media, they themselves immediately take to those same media and tell their followers that such rumors are false, and most importantly, to urge calm. And I think because of their stature in the community, that has really worked. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention another equally disturbing phenomenon, which is the growing problem of state-sponsored social media misinformation campaigns. Mm -hmm. The Internet Institute of England's famous Oxford University has studied the social media activities of the Russian Internet Research Agency. And this is a group that was set up in St. Petersburg by President Putin with a relatively small $10 million budget. And the Oxford team has showed how this Russian agency has sought to exacerbate divisions in America ahead of the 2016 elections, and how they flooded a lot of the swing districts in the United States with misleading or inflammatory advertisements on Facebook and other platforms. And Oxford has now documented how Russia and China are now using the same social media toolkit in countries like India, Iran, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia. And they calculate that in 2020, there are now organized social media misinformation teams working for parties and governments in some 70 different countries. So we need to recognize this growing problem as well and deal with it. Mm. Awesome. So uh, freedom of media should be balanced with the involvement of, uh, you know, many groups within society, right, Ambassador? Yep. Absolutely. Great. So uh, let me go to the U.S. foreign policy now. Uh, we know that the world is expecting active U.S. leadership in fighting COVID-19. Uh, however, the facts show the opposite. Uh, personally, I think it's imperative to reinvigorate U.S. public diplomacy, uh, especially at this time. Uh, in your observation, Ambassador, what has changed from the perspective of countries and people outside the world, outside the U.S. towards American foreign policy? Well, I think our handling of the COVID-19 challenge, both at home and abroad, has diminished our standing in the world. 
The executive director of Australia's Lowy Institute put it well recently, and I quote, he said, America's mediocre performance in response to COVID-19 has shaken a lot of observers. We are accustomed to seeing America as the epicenter of global power, not the epicenter of global disease. The Ebola uh, disease broke out in West Africa in 2013 and threatened to become a global pandemic. It was the United States that took the lead to organize a successful global response. So we built, coordinated, and led a worldwide response while at the same time strengthening our own preparedness at home. And the Obama administration then wrote a handbook for future administration. Uh, the Trump administration chose to ignore that ha handbook and it has mismanaged the US response both at home and it has declined to take on our role to mobilize the international community. So again, I think both of these have really diminished our standings, and I regret that. Ambassador, you can refer uh, my next questions uh, to, the, to the region of Southeast Asia. Uh, in your view, will coronavirus bring stronger isolationism and economic nationalism? And what would this mean for the future of regional integration, either politically or economically, in this region? Well, that's a great question. Um, I do think that our once globalized world is fragmenting and that economic nationalism is growing, as you say. Global problems like pandemics require a global response. Think how the world came together to address climate change, for example, drawing on the power of the United Nations but also the leadership of countries like the United States and China at the time. If anything today, global problems are worsening. It's not just COVID-19 or climate change, but also huge global problems like the displacement of human populations that are creating record numbers of refugees. And yet at this critical moment, the institutions of global governance have really not proved up to the task. Uh, let me just give you a few examples. The main institution that is responsible for ensuring global peace and security is the UN Security Council. And the UN Security Council has accomplished very little in recent years, primarily due to the differences between the United States, Russia, and China, each of whom vetoes initiatives by the others. So what's happening? Instead, you're seeing sub-regional and ad hoc groupings that are becoming more important. And let me just give you maybe one or two examples. One is the Quad, which is an emerging coalition between the United States, India, Australia, and Japan. And what unites all of those countries is alarm at various Chinese expansionist policies uh, in the South China Sea and elsewhere. And so uh, this institution has evolved to provide a forum for discussion about how to handle that challenge. And I think we might see new institutions emerge. There is talk, for example, of what is being called a new D10 grouping. And this would be the G7 democracies, plus South Korea, 
India, and Australia. So I think we're gonna, we're gonna see more of these kinds of, uh, again, ad hoc um, institutions springing up to deal with various problems as our more traditional um, institutions like the UN have really not proved up to the task. Uh, which is now has a challenge where the, the, the Japan uh, opposed the involvement of uh, South Korea in the G10, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yes. So, Ambassador, um, shortly, um, a short question for me uh, What would happen to the 2020 presidential election? <laughs> How much damage has been done by the pandemic to Trump's position? Well, Trump's mismanagement of America's pandemic response has caused him uh, quite significant damage. Um, America, of course, course, now has the world's highest number of COVID-19 cases and the world's highest number of deaths. Yesterday, we reached the sad milestone in the United States of 2 point, which is one. How did we reach this dubious milestone? Uh, I think principally because from the very beginning, President Trump has downplayed the dangers of the virus and he's refused to heed the guidance of our nation's career health officials that everyone should be wearing masks, that everybody should be practicing social distancing, and that America's states should not be reopening until caseloads have diminished and proper contact tracing measures are in place. Uh, and again, unfortunately, the administration has not heeded that advice. And so the sad result is that the virus is surging in America now. We have had five straight days of record high numbers of new cases just in the past week. And it, the virus is surging in many of the so-called red states, that is states that traditionally vote Republican, like Texas and Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing uh, the governors of Texas and Florida now who are having to reimpose restrictions. So a clear admission that they reopened too fast. So coming back to your question, I think Trump's poor leadership and his mixed messaging on coronavirus and his unwillingness to take concerted action to address the racial issues that have surfaced as a result of the George Floyd killing have badly hurt his political standing. Most polls show him trailing Joe Biden in the presidential race now by a double-digit margin. And perhaps even more worrying for him is that the only demographic left that supports him is white males without a college education. He's lost the support of important demographics like independent voters who narrowly supported him in the 2016 elections. And another important indicator that I think bodes badly for Trump is his eroding support in key swing states that he must win. In the 2016 elections, Trump carried the swing states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And he is now behind in all three states. And perhaps even more worrying for him is that he is behind in Florida and Arizona. Again, two crucial states that he carried in 2016, and he must win to be reelected in November. Mm -hmm. So again, I think Trump's mishandling of the coronavirus uh, challenge 
has really damaged his political standing and damaged his reelection prospects. Uh, so, Ambassador, in case Trump is not reelected as the U.S. president, VP Joe Biden is elected. Uh, and we know people said that this is not the U.S. foreign policy, but Trump foreign policy. What do we expect in terms of changes in the U.S. foreign policy? And uh, in your observation, how can you describe the difficulties for the U.S. later on to change the Trump legacy on foreign policy? Well, that's a great question. Uh, there, there are a lot, actually several different questions in there, so let me try to unpack them a little bit. Mm -hmm. First of all, you mentioned the Trump foreign policy. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the startling statements by former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton in his new book is that he cannot think of a single major decision that was made by President Trump that was not motivated by how it would impact his reelection prospects. Mm. In other words, Trump has little concern for the national interest and a laser-like focus on his own personal interest. Second, as is well known, Trump has pursued a much more transactional foreign policy, one that is unilateral, and one in which he has de-emphasized diplomacy and our traditional alliances in favor of more coercive means to exercise US power, such as greater use of threats and punitive measures like sanctions. But another issue that I don't think has received sufficient attention abroad is that a strong foreign policy must rest on a strong domestic foundation. Certainly, President Jacoby feels that way. And I think America faces a series of problems now that the next president has to address. And let me just mention a few. Perhaps our most significant is just the deep political divisions within the United States that have really caused dysfunction. We have a badly divided Congress that uh, is exacerbated, exacerbated by a president who is more interested in trying to sow divisions rather than achieve unity. Secondly, we have one of the most significant problems of gun-related violence of any country in the world. We also have a very serious opioid ep epidemic um, that has not gotten as much attention as the COVID-19 problem, but is still there. And lastly, I think several, several successive administrations have failed to address our decaying infrastructure, including the uneven access of many, country, of many Americans to our digital infrastructure, as COVID-19 is highlighted. So the challenges are great, but I do believe that Joe Biden has the experience and has the vision to unify our country to address these challenges and that if he is elected, he will be able to count on a really substantial pool of talented and very experienced former officials, including many Republicans, by the way, who will be prepared to step in to join his administration. And as we discussed earlier, I think President Biden, if he's elected, would restore the bipartisan tradition of working with our friends and allies to confront the challenges that the world faces. And the world, once again, will be able to count on the United States to resume its traditional global leadership role 
with a renewed emphasis on diplomacy and not coercion. So if I have one final comment for all of your listeners out there, it don't give up on America because I do think we'll be back. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's my last question, Ambassador. I know that uh, oh, I think we need uh, more than a day to discuss the US foreign policy comprehensively, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to border your time. And thank you so much once again. I'm so honored and very glad to having you here in this foreign policy talk. Oh, no, the honor's all mine. And I really appreciate the opportunity. And again, my best wishes to Ambassador Jalal and to uh, all of my friends at FPCI. Thank you so much. Uh, and Goodbye. Terrific. Bye-bye.